The subject for the evening talk is an engaged spirituality. <coughs> if I look back over what I would uh, consider as the, the teachings, the, the application of the Dharma, and look back over the, the years and the centuries and the generations of men and women who have been involved in the integration and application of the teachings, I would say that there are perhaps four important pillars upon which the foundations or the, the, the structure of the teachings take place. And it seems to me that each one gives uh, support to the other. And the four pillars that come to mind with regard to the historical process of teachings, Dharma, teachings, and the word Dharma in the Sanskrit D-H-A-R-M-A means teachings, teachings which deals with the realities of uh, human existence in a practical and hopefully effective way. And the four pillars come to mind would be the, the insights which are to be found in the, these early Buddhist uh, texts in which it is purported that the Buddha spoke about the nature of things. So when one looks at the texts themselves, one sees there are lots of observations and perceptions which deal with the contemporary situation in which he and others were living in. And then there are teachings, the essential, what I would call the essential teachings here, in which the teachings apply to all generations of men and women, past, present, and into future. And these teachings, in order for them, originally for them to be easily made accessible, that is, the, in, through the framework of the language, they were put into small groupings, small formulas, we might say, for easy oral transmission. And this took place from one generation to the next because many people, of course, in India and elsewhere uh, in those times were illiterate, as in fact, tragically, enormous illiteracy still. And therefore, some of the formulations of the teachings would be expressed uh, a number of them you'll be, some of you will be familiar with. <coughs> Probably the best known of them all is what is called the Four Noble Truths. Noble meaning major, significant truths of life. One is that there is suffering in this world. Second is that suffering arises owing to the conditions for it to arise. The third is there is freedom from suffering. There is the end of suffering. And fourth is that there is the way 
to this ending. And this formulation, which we are told was originally uh, realized in that formulation under the tree in Bodhgaya, set the tone, so to speak, for the teachings. And then there are other areas which equally have been emphasized for the welfare and benefit of human beings. One is for, an, for there to be an ethical foundation for one's existence, meaning a life which endeavors to be free from violence, free from killing and destructiveness, free from abuse and exploitation. And to call it, this is called SILA, S-I-L-A, the ethical foundation. Second factor, which goes along with it, out of that, and just imagine a world without, just without killing, and without stealing, without sexual abuse, without distorted lying speech, without resorting to drugs and alcohol, which is damaging to mind and body. And that has been regarded in the, in the teachings over thousands of years as serving as a foundation for human beings, for the health and welfare and harmony of people, just the application of that. And then on that basis, on that application of those, the base, those basic teachings, then comes the field of meditation, the field of what is called samadhi, S-A-M-A-D-H-I, the the aspect of the teachings which deal with mindfulness, meditation, awareness, um, very uh, um, meditative states of experience, going deep into oneself, the inner inquiry. All of this falls into the area of samadhi, and that meditative abiding and being. And through the foundations of the sila, the ethics, the virtuous way of being, through the foundations and application of samadhi, of meditative ways and means, ways of observation and mindfulness, one comes to understanding, one comes to wisdom in our living in the world. And these are regarded as the sikai, S-I-K-H-A, which means the, the, the fields of training, basically, so through, through the Four Noble Truths, through the fields of training, of virtuous way of being in the world, meditative processes, wisdom, clarity, the teachings are applied. And then there are many other areas and small groupings which have been made, very much as a reminder, reminder to us. And you have other small groupings, the fact of the characteristics of existence. All phenomena, all that appears in this world is subject to change. Everything is anicca. Since everything is changing, there's something about that which so easily and frequently for us makes it unsatisfactory. What we have, we lose, we get separated from what we love, what we want, we don't, can't keep, things come and things go. All of that's a, a characteristic of 
living in the world. Sometimes it works to our satisfaction, sometimes it works very much to our dissatisfaction. And this is described as being somewhat unsatisfactory for human beings to be living in. And you and I, we've all noticed the unrest and dissatisfaction which has come to us as a result of unwelcomed change, unwanted change. And so owing to this impermanence and change, owing to the factors in life of unsatisfactoriness and our experience of it in a very direct way, it is said of the, t said of the way of things that it's very much anatta. I mean, this means not self, we might say, somewhat impersonal. It just takes place. We sit, thoughts come and go, feelings come and go, body sensations come and go, sounds come and go. And this is going on and going on, and self may say, I don't want it to be like that, but it still goes on. So it's said, so it can't really be regarded as self. So these become, again, the exploration and an inquiry into these areas of change, of unsatisfactoriness, which so easily goes with change, of the not-self aspect of it. And, and the other areas, too, we have touched on here is significance in life, and this is where the beginnings of an engaged spirituality come in, what is referred to as the divine abidings. Divine means profound, deep abidings in life accessible to human beings. One of them is friendship in life. Friendship which is called metta. That means an unstoppable friendship, a pervasive friendship to all life forms. And that respect and acknowledgement of life. This is... This is Matters a very deep friendship for life, and karuna, compassion. Compa compassion is often said in the Dharma teachings over the many many centuries that the Dharma is like a bird on the wing, and the bird on the and the bird has two wings. One is wisdom, living with wisdom, and the other is living with compassion. And compassion very specifically means. Not so much a feeling inside of oneself. That may not be compassion at all. That may be pity. Compassion is when I as a human being see suffering and out of that seeing comes an action which is skillful and appropriate to help see the end of that suffering. So in order for compassion to be in the world, it has, from the standpoint of the teachings, needs to be balanced with wisdom. And much of the wisdom we gain out of observation. Observation, or meditative awarenesses, being in touch with, comes through learning about ourselves, that contributes to our understanding, and our interest in being and learning about the world. We learn from ourselves, we learn from others. And so when you and I are actually engaged in the action of the end, towards the end of suffering, in different, many countless ways, then that moment, that time, then the compassion is at work. 
Otherwise, it's just a, it's just a feeling. And this, <coughs> the wings of the of the Dharma teachings means that in these divine abidings, these expressions of that, friendship, compassion, another very important aspect for consciousness is joy. The, the spiritual joy. And it's a spiritual joy which is, does, doesn't know any boundaries. In that respect, when, when the teachings in the old texts have spoken of, of spiritual joy, it's when you and I both inwardly experience a joy in life, a joy in what we're doing, a joy in practice, a joy in the challenge of working with situations which are spiritually nourishing. But equally, spiritual joy, lovely word in the Pali language, it's mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A. Mudita, it's when one sees in others um, happiness in others, when one sees the uh, uh, end of suffering in another person, when one sees gladness or peace in another person, out of oneself comes this mudita. Out of, this, out of oneself comes this spiritual joy. And a number of people today, because our, our friends, those Mar- House Martins on the, in the, the nest up there, and a number of you have been watching in the garden, myself, or looking through the exit door there, been watching the, these house martins sitting in a nest or rather squashed in there. <laughs> and, as the, and, the, and, the, and the mother working and the father working incredibly hard flying around and feeding them. And day by day their confidence has been growing. Their own organic process has been going on there. And the last couple of days we've been looking through and then first of all one of them got to the um, edge of the nest and then turned his back on the air and looked in the nest and turned round and the others would start doing it. There's been a lot of activity there and the, and the parents have been flying in there and giving them the odd nudge here and, <laughs> here, here and there. And, and some of you actually saw, I uh, didn't uh, uh, see it, but some of you actually saw two or three of these young birds take their, their first flight and, and then just zoomed around and then raced back to that wire as close to the nest as they could get. <laughs> and something in that, that sense of joy that of their on the wing, their freedom being expressed, that is mudita. That kind of joy. It's a very, very beautiful joy in which we don't ask anything of the birds. We don't expect them to come and give us something. But rather, it's that joy which sees what's happening, sees the birds on the wing. And so this evening, they're on another wire, all five of them, all sitting up there, and the mother's popping in and flying off, and their whole world is opening up for them. So that's spiritual joy. And when there is the receptivity and peace of being, then all these areas, these beautiful 
experiences of life, of friendship for life, of compassion for life, of spiritual joy in life, and of peace of being. And not something which are so distant and so far removed from us as human beings, but we receive in different times, in different moments, sometimes in a more sustainable way, sometimes not, the intimations of these experiences and their important, their profound exist, um, significance for human life. So this is just, I would say, as it were, one pillar of the teachings. And then, just that pillar, in a way it seems to me, perhaps wouldn't be enough unless we can actually find practical ways and means in our life to implement the teachings which express as wisdom and compassion in life and which acknowledge in a way the birthright of humanity to be liberated. Not liberated out of this world, not liberated in an alien way, but liberated in terms of that sense, that wonder of being a completely free human being amidst the changes, amidst the events of, of life, utterly free in this whole vast field. And in, that, in the teachings, what has accompanied that as another pillar are what we might call the meditations, the methods, the techniques, the, sometimes the, the strategies, the ways of looking, the explorations, the inquiries, all the, the community, the teachers, um, the transmissions, all, all of that from that body of teachings gains, um, makes it accessible to us. Now, one of the things which happens in terms of that, the pillar of teachings in terms of their application, and it very easily occurs, and this week I've had um, about three meetings um, with uh, the staff and under a couple of these meetings with different ways on the one-to-one -one and small group have been uh, touching on this, is that when you come into a situation like this and you spend a number of days here, some of you have spent long retreats here, some of you know the uh, woodwork around here as well as any of us who have been coming since the 70s, that one of the things which can register as an impression in the mind that practice and the teachings are somehow best applied via the form of meditation. And so what does tend to happen, of which there's no historical emphasis, it's, this is what easily happens in our contemporary setting, is that we th when we think of practice, when we think of the work, when we think of the exploration for a liberated way of being, we very easily and understandably think of it via sitting and walking in a slow, mindful, precise, concentrated way like has been taking place. And if we build up a focus around that, what happens as we do so frequently 
you know, what we identify, when we identify with what we're associated with, as was talking last night, then in some way or other we don't have the same regard in terms of practice in other situations. We begin to think of it in some way focusing in the form that we are using here over the days together. And I think we've got to be very alert with ourselves and extremely vigilant and that we don't think of practice as somehow just when I'm on the zafu, I'm on the cushion or chair or whatever. And with the staff here, there's some 15 people on the, on the staff here, because their work is full on with service and to other people and ensuring all that... Uh, the space for us to do this kind of work. The staff frequently get messages, not sometimes verbally, but sometimes almost, you know, in the air around here, that the work is just a, a kind of support system for the practice. It's like it's kind of on the fringes of it. And so very easily staff people can get, get the view that when I'm in the kitchen or when I'm in the office or when I'm in the maintenance department or when I'm wherever, that somehow or other that's not what it's about. It's not the same. It doesn't have the same quality, the same whatever. And I think this is very easy when we've identified ourselves in a way of limiting the scope of what practice means. And so in a, from the standpoint of an engaged spirituality, it's obviously, it seems to me, as significant to that where one actually is and the kind of work and activity that one is engaged in, to really see that work, and especially with work which is service-orientated towards other people, that that work and that which, for many of you who are in various fields of service work, really will constitute a major thread of what, what you will call and refer to as practice. So sometimes in our activities and in our overview of the situation, one's got to bear in mind that the probability for you is that your time here is seven, eight, ten days, Two, two weeks, perhaps in the course of a year. And so though one might put a lot of energy, as you do, and time and resources into being here, the scope of practice, the scope of application of teachings must extend, must extend, if they are to be effective, into the situation where you are. So that there is the appreciation here, there is hopefully renewal here, there is insights here, there is certain clarities and understandings coming here. But your daily life and your, the scope of your daily life is where you live, where you exist, where you have your being, where you have your doings. And it's the appreciation, the recognition of it there must come in, and when we forget it, 
then I think we're limiting our scope. We're limiting, in a way, we're limiting our potential. One of the things, too, in these various pillars, shall we say, another very important uh, aspect, say, with an engaged spirituality. I think there are many ways of expressing expressing an, an engaged spirituality. And one of the things which concerns, concerns me is that sometimes a... A number of people and like, um, who are in a particular kind of service work for the individual, for the welfare of a group, welfare of a, of a segment of society or whatever it might be, welfare of animals or environment, that sometimes in the work in which one is engaged, the, the work itself can seem to be somewhat separate from spirituality. It doesn't have an obvious connection to it. And I think this is where people end up with difficulty. Let's say someone, say, on staff is working in the computer room. And and one might ask, well, what's spiritual in working with computers? And some people say, well, I don't know, I don't know. But then one would have to check in with oneself, with one's work. What actually is the motivation? What is one endeavouring to do through the use of technology? What kind of purpose is behind it? And then the pur- purpose says, well, to inform people of retreats, to keep a mailing, to have so people can have access to where other people are living, like-minded people, etc., etc., so sometimes when the motivation comes in and we look at the motivation, it helps us to see where the spiritual side of it is. And, and if in looking at our motivation and we see, well, it's not there in that way, it's ambition, it's profit, it's prestige, it's power, it's control, or whatever. We really can't see anything else, but it's, it's just that. Then we may have to consider not only what we're doing, not only our relationship to what we're doing, but also what we're doing. So that we can expand, in a way, our horizons, hopefully, so that we can really say to ourselves, with as much honesty as possible, that I'm endeavouring to bring in the teachings into daily life, I'm endeavouring to bring in spirituality into daily life, to bring these liberating awarenesses and, and the heart into what I do. And so, lots of people who come here, and many thousands have come over the years, and, you know, there's a huge mailing list of 12,000, 13,000 people who have of people who have just done retreats in the last few years here. Many have undergone, and as some of you well know, quite major changes in one's life to help open the inner horizons, expand out, so that one has a feeling that in one's life the day somehow 
and the teachings somehow are working together. That the pillars of it is working with all the difficulty and challenge to find their expression in one's living situation. And I think it's a tremendous undertaking and uh, challenge, and this is where we need our support to be able that we can say this to ourselves. Even with all the difficulty and di hardship that we go through in teachings and the messages that the teachers put out, but we're really implementing that in some way or other that gives consideration <coughs> to the significance of an engaged spirituality. And I think personally, of course I'm prejudiced, but that uh, I would call that right effort to find ways to make that happen in one's life. And there are a couple of aspects here, and um, from a personal view with regard to these pillars of the teachings, is that in some work in which some people are engaged, and one expression is working, as I mentioned, directly, say, with one other person, or a small group, sometimes the work is towards a, a direct contribution to that individual, that group's health and welfare and uh, clarity and peace of heart and mind. Or whoever we're working with, whatever the age, whatever the, the background. But I think, and it's tremendous work and takes a lot of time and energy and commitment and dedication. But sometimes, from an overview standpoint, and I think and Dharma teachings constantly look at the relative and the overview. The overview standpoint is that sometimes the social realities are such that we work just with the individual level and it's like we're trying to make people well to fit into a system, into a society which makes people unwell. And there's this constant tension and difficulty when we're faced with, in a way, with this truth. And, and I think this is where, and this is because of time and um, exploration and uh, all that's implied in that, that it's not easy to explore an engaged spirituality which looks at the society which makes people um well, and what our relationship to that is at the larger level. Someone, I mean to take a simple example, somebody has, is an alcoholic, very, very common, I think there are um, more than uh, 10 or 15 million people in the US who have problems with alcohol, very, very common situation. And that person enters into a program, enters into the 12-step program, enters into work with another uh, uh, individual so that he or she can come out of the pain and the suffering. As some of you know very, very uh, well that comes through alcohol. And hopefully the person can come out of that and be free from the harm and the destructiveness that it that it causes again and again. But then there's a consideration of what is the, 
the kind of overview of the situation. What, is the, what are the other considerations? And so when you see the massive amount of propaganda and advertising around alcohol, so that it seems like, as someone said to me recently, for every person that comes out of, out of alcohol and is liberated from that, there are more people who are becoming alcoholic. And when you read a report like the, the, the whiskey company that took a whole series of advertisements, so it took a whole series of uh, advertising company to advertise a whiskey, they put out all these photographs on the desk, then they, then they brought into the office a number of alcoholics. And then they said to the alcoholics, look at these photographs and see which makes you feel most thirsty. And, and the one that they found in this particular sequence was the bottle of whiskey, the empty glass, and the ice in the glass. That one went through every major magazine for two or three years throughout, throughout the country, knowing full well it's a mood move to increase addiction and it increases suffering, not only for the alcoholic, but the codependent situation of others. So sometimes one is working with the, the symptom, the, the expression of it, the, the, the outer of the individual, which is so vital and important, but the overview says, what about the, their social reality? What about the political reality? What about the manipulation of consciousness? So it seems to me that an engaged spirituality, by necessity, in particular ways, focuses on the situation, the personal, human, and humane contact, yet considers the wider view. And there's a lot of exploration in different ways, in different forms, in different means of that taking place. And so, in that, it's not an easy undertaking. And one won't find the inspiration in the newspapers, in the magazines, or at least barely. One has to go to people who are exploring these areas, who are informed, and there are enough books around and information around to, f to feel well enough informed that it doesn't dishearten, but it brings, touches the heart, it heartens, it heartens the compassion and the concern inside of us. What very easily occurs in these, there's the teachings, there's the various ways and means, the methods, the practices, and all that practice means throughout the whole of the day. There's an engaged spirituality, and, but very easily, and one's got to be watchful of course, is that one doesn't start bringing inside of oneself some I ought to, I should, I must. Because there's many other areas in, in if we are really living and endeavouring to live a life with real quality to it and simplicity and uh, purity of heart and a way of living in the world which, by one's being, never mind doing this and doing that, but just by one's being, 
that itself is making a statement in the world. So when I think of engaged spirituality, I don't mean to say that it's necessarily going out there and doing. That is one practice, one form of engaged spirituality. But there's an engaged spirituality in, in this world where it's expressed through one's whole being, it's expressed through one's way of living in this world. And, and that's a statement to life in itself. And that statement has enormous powers to it. And so some of us, for example, who have um, spent some time in the in the uh, East, and I remember when I took a, just a small example, when I took um, ordination and I spent the first three years in a monastery and doing what we've been doing here, sitting and walking in the way of um, um, mindfulness. And then from there I left to go to um, live in solitude and spent the uh, best part of a year in a a uh, cave in the, off Thailand, in a small island. And I'm, one of the things, among many things which stand out uh, during those uh, years, is the very fact that there had been monks and nuns, different traditions, who had spent time in solitude, who had lived that, and who apparently hadn't been doing anything overtly in the world but had just been doing that. That that also was a, a wonderful statement, a statement of inspiration, a, a statement of encouragement, of, of endorsement. And in, the, and in a world which demands so much of people to conform, as it were, or be together, or to be involved, I think sometimes the non-involvement and the silence of being, and the quietude, and the stillness is very, very important. And that whole dimension, as yet in, in the teachings, as they take root in the West, actually isn't happening very much at the present time. What it needs, what I think that needs is, for example, is like with a centre like IMS, it has 80 acres of forest here. It's begging for people to go and use that forest. <laughs> Most of us have hardly been in there. Maybe 20 yards and that's it. It's like it's a, a foreign alien environment out there. You know, and we forget that human life, it emerged out of the tropical rainforest. Our, our home, our roots, is in the forest and now we... What, what, what do I want to go in there for? <laughs> <laughs> and there needs to be possibilities and situations for people to spend time, as some of us have had enormous privilege to spend time, days or weeks, or some opportunity to be in a hut in the forest, in the quietness of the, of the day and the night hours there, in, in the nature with the trees and the creatures and the in insects. It's a very, very beautiful thing to do. And, and those kind of statements and those kind of expressions need to go out, need to be experienced and communi communicated. And I think there's a lot to be done in this area. Some of you 
have land, some of you have places in the countryside, some of you know a friend, and to give people that time and space and opportunity for, for a, a solitude in life. It's a very, and I regard that as much an expression of engaged spirituality as being right out there in the middle of a city working for the homeless or the dispossessed or the, or the people in acute forms of su social suffering. <coughs> so that's another pillar of practice, of, of the teachings. And with the teachings, and sometimes we notice, we feel, we sense, a, we sense a connection with them. Some of you have a connection through many years, and we've traveled through, and some of you, of course, long-standing friends of mine, so we've, we've traveled through many situations, and we've met each other all over the world through the years of the teachings, and, and of course, with other teachers, as well. And through, through those and through the different phases and ebbs and, ebbs and flows of our life, though the teachings which uh, hopefully enliven us and inspire us and keep us questioning, that, that needs and that requires from all of us quite a lot of letting go, quite a lot of sacrifice quite a lot of willingness in life to put some other things aside in life which we, which we might describe as more pleasurable or more leisurable or, or uh, whatever it might be, might require us to put aside some of our preoccupations with money and the future and, and with being successful in the world in the accepted sense. And allowing ourselves and making it possible for ourselves to have the regularity of access to teachers, to teachings, without being restricted by a teaching or by a teacher. Keep peeping and appreciating one's freedom to explore. But that, all of that requires from all of us a... requires that kind of regularity of commitment and dedication which is being expressed here during the days and gets expressed here uh, uh, throughout the whole year, in fact. And yet, so there are the teachings which take place, there are the various ways and means to have a, uh, an, a view, uh, a living perception of practice as including everything. No stone is left unturned as far as practice goes. Everything can fall into its scope. So this is one part of the scope, one, as one, not a big aspect either, one aspect of the scope. And the third is that engaged spirituality, making a statement for life. However, whatever it might be, a very engaged communication, maybe that one of the silence and the solitude may just be through being, but making it. And the other, the fourth one, I would say is the important aspect. And that is the whole area of what is called d dana, means giving and generosity. And that which makes, allows and enables things to happen and enables things to continue. And there's a wonderful uh, aspect of the teachings and the teachers and the managers at centres 
do mention this, do speak about this at the end of uh, retreats. But in using this word, da, the word dana means gift, D-A-N-A -A in the Pali language. That's the language the Buddha is said to have spoken in. And in that dana, in that expression, it's where you and I, we find ways in our life to give in different forms that we can give for the enhancement, for the welfare, for the support of life, support of others. And there are many expressions, of course, of that kind of giving, of that kind of generosity. And so even when we consider the teachings and the rhythm of the teachings, both East and West, and I regard the teachings as not coming from the East, but coming from humanity, that with regard to the teachings, I and others receive the teachings themselves quite freely. I never had to pay for any teachings, and they have been passed on from one generation to another, and I and others, but teachers who teach here, are very much involved in that process of sharing of the teachings, giving of the teachings, and we as teachers very much get supported by that. And I think it's a, in, a, in our society, which is so money and profit orientated, I think it's a very beautiful expression of an engaged spirituality in itself. And so just recently on the West Coast, as a number of you may, may know, that friends, the Dharma friends, friends of the spiritual community over there, have been um, working and, uh, and practicing over a number of uh, years and after more than a two-year search, it was about a year or two ago now, found some land owned by the Nature Conservancy Council, I think that's the name of it, which they were selling, I think it was for $1.3 million, something like that. And they were selling this land at a place called Spirit Rock in order to buy tropical rainforest in South America. So this land, which was originally, I think, an American Indian side, being sold for such purposes, to preserve the tropical rainforest. And then the spiritual community, the Dharma friends, said we wanted to buy this piece of land and one member of the, the community, the Dharma community, very kindly gave half a million dollars towards the purchase. And others contributed what they could to enable this uh, huge project to take place, more than 300 acres of it. And just this week, the, 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 the board, the teachers, and uh, whatever, the planning permission, all the, the approvals for all the things that need in this bureaucratic nightmare of a society, that all got passed through. All the, all the OKs were, were given after a tremendous amount of uh, paperwork to ensure this to happen. And one of the discussions and the debates with which was going on, that there was no in terms of the dana and the giving, and of course they still have to raise money through the community to buy, uh, 
to buy the materials and build the places, the, the meditation hall, the kitchens, accommodation, etc. But one of the di- debates and discussions going on there amongst, amongst us who are connected with the, the place is everyone agrees without, without doubt the value of giving the teachings without making a charge to help to keep the daily rate as low as possible because the teachings can be given uh, freely and the community gives support to the, the teachers through the donations and the contributions at the end of the retreat. But then what the discussion was about was what about the weekend workshops? What about the one-day seminars? when other people with lots of skills come in, but they don't have any connection with this tradition of not charging for the teachings that what people pay for or the the running costs of these places. And there's been quite some discussion going back and forth, and I don't think there's any complete resolution of this, but some of us, and certainly people like Joseph, Joseph Goldstein and uh, myself and other teachers, Joseph is a co-founder of the centre here, feel quite strongly that we would like to see, and we have to explore this, with the, we're exploring it with the community, that all the activities, everyone from an evening class to a one-day workshop to a, a retreat like we have here, all of that is an offering. All of that is a, a gift, a a transmission out of this long period of time. And, and to continue with the, that way of approach, so that people who wish to give, do give and enable us to pay all the parenting and household bills and all the ongoing expenses of uh, the, the, the daily life. And in, in that, I tend to regard these pillars of the teachings, the actual teachings themselves, the digesting, the integrating of these, countless ways and means of applying them, the methods, the techniques, the forms, the emphases that are given, that important aspect of engaged spirituality, making a statement in the world and ways that that can be established, and the teachings with regard to doing for others, not in various ways in which, of course, we have to make a livelihood, of course, sometimes in what we, of course, what we give, we have to receive a salary for, for those who work in that mode, or make charges, an hourly rate, if you work a particular way. All that's quite appropriate and quite necessary in, in life. Yet, within the scope of all of that, always keeping our heart and our eyes and our ears open for the person who is hard up, the person who doesn't have much money, the people who may not feel they have access because of a financial consideration. And in extending ourselves in these ways, as well as the overview, I think helps to give uh, an expansive sense (coughs) of the teachings truly expansive sense of it. And in that we find our, our way with that. We find our approach with that. We find ways and means to 
integrate that into our living settings. If we do that, the teachings will continue as long as humanity walks on the face of the earth because they're, they're integrated into the realities of things, they're integrated into society. And that responsibility is with everybody in this room. It's not just teachers, it's all of us involved in the teachings. May all beings. Appreciate the teachings. May all beings explore the expression of the teachings. May all beings live with wisdom. So let's have a couple of minutes quiet period together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.